are you serving God as a slave or are you serving him as a son? You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. of you have heard uh, what's called a rite of passage? Let me see your hands. Rite of passage. Um, let me give you the Wikipedia definition. By the way, Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want about any subject. So you know you're getting the best possible information. <clears throat> Wikipedia says this, a rite of passage is a ritual event that marks a person's progress from one status to another. Now, many cultures have specific moments or even celebration ceremonies where they move a child from childhood to adulthood. In fact, uh, I would say in our family, we kind of do this uniquely. We have a, a 13-year-old charge. When our kids are 13, I give them a charge uh, to kind of challenge them. Uh, at age 16, our extended family does a really fancy dinner, and we kind of celebrate, um, maybe driving, maybe not. Uh, and then at 18, it's my intention to have uh, some people who have been key influencers in our kids' lives spend a day with them uh, together as a family and just pray for them and pour some wisdom into them. So, so that's what we do as a family. But, but all of us celebrate these little milestones in our kids' lives. Some of you, we have a lot of shoreliners who have some new babies. And so certainly you know that there's some, some kind of sad moments when those kids go from the newborn infant clothes to the, the three to six month, the one-year-old clothing. And we don't necessarily celebrate those, but there are some things that we do celebrate. Maybe it's the first time our, our child smiles or the first walk or stumble. Uh, maybe it's the, the first, I don't know, uh, the, the first step, the first Starbucks for our kids we celebrated. Um, we had that. Um, the first time my kids caught a fish, that was a big moment. And, uh, of course, other moments like driving stick, which we haven't done yet, uh, when our kids have their first kiss at the age of 40. Um, there's, of course, um, those moments, really big moments, like in 32 days when the Star Wars final movie and the original series comes out, not that I'm keeping count, but, uh, oh, wow, okay, church discipline, someone's booing that. Um, boyhood to manhood is a huge step, and in ancient culture, there was actually a ceremony that marked a change from childhood to adulthood. In fact, let me show you three of them. According to William Barclay, uh, there, there are three examples of this. In the Jewish world, you could say, on the first Sabbath after a boy passed his 12th birthday, his dad would take him to the synagogue, and he would be now known as a son of the law. And the father would utter this benediction. He would say, blessed be thou, O God, who has taken from me the responsibility for this boy. And then the boy would pray a prayer where he would basically say, O God of my fathers, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes to you and declare with sincerity and truth, and henceforth I keep the commandments and undertake and bear the responsibility of my actions towards thee. And that was the age of 13 in uh, Judaism. Then there's Greece. You see here, Greece, they celebrated uh, around the age of 18. At the age of 18, the boy was now called a cadet. 
And for two years, he was under the direction of the state. And so the Athenians had 10 clans, and essentially at this ceremony, you would have your long hair cut, and you would offer that to the gods, and then you were received into your particular clan. So at, at Greek culture, that age was 18. But then there's the Roman culture. And the Roman culture, under Roman law, the year that a boy grew up was not fixed, but it was somewhere between the ages of 14 and 17. And there was a sacred festival where he'd switch out his toga that he wore as a child for a grown-up uh, adult toga. Apparently there's different varieties of togas. And then he would be brought by his friends and family to the forum and introduced to public life. And there he would, and this is in other cultures even today in the, um, in the eastern uh, part of the world, where you offer your ball or a girl would offer her doll. Sometimes they do that in courtship. But you would do this to Apollo to show uh, that you were putting away childish things. There's some verses that reference that. And so the typical age was around 14 or so. Now in our culture, uh, we don't necessarily have that. We've introduced this middle stage called adolescence. And sadly, in our culture, we have boys who can now shave, uh, and we have adolescence that's prolonged. And so we have a wake, sadly, of, um, of illegitimate kids and just a rough culture because people have prolonged adolescence. Uh, and the idea of teenager is not in the Bible. The idea of teenager came from a Reader's Digest submission in the 1940s. And so the word adolescence is actually a modern construct. It's not, the Bible is not familiar with such terms. Uh, the idea in the scriptures is that there's a turning from childhood to adulthood. Uh, and so in, in these ancient cultures, uh, these would mark a significant change. And this idea, this concept influenced Paul. And so he uses particularly the Roman example, as an example in our text this morning in Galatians chapter 4. So as we study this text, we're going to see how we, you and I, are no longer children. We're no longer slaves under the law. We have now reached maturity as adult sons uh, of faith. And what we are going to see is that we have entered into our inheritance and we now enjoy this freedom that we even just sang about uh, in our adulthood in Christ. If you're here last week, we talked about the law and the fact that the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 was believed, it was received by Abraham by faith, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so he, in that faith, became the father of all who would be heirs of a gracious promise by faith. And we realize that this blessing that came to Abraham was found ultimately in Christ. And so today, what we're going to see is a huge rite of passage that we all in Christ have experienced. There's a milestone, you could say, that we can and should celebrate together. You and I, who were slaves, are now sons and daughters. And the argument that Paul's going to go for in this text is that a true son, a true adopted child, would never long to go back to being a slave. And so this is the outline for our text today. If you're taking note, here's where we're going with the text. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 at how we were slaves. Then we're going to see in verses 4 through 7 how we are sons. Some of the best and my most beloved scripture verses in Galatians in the scripture. And then we're going to see how because of that, Paul in verses 8 through 11 seems to be surprised. So that's where we're going today. Uh, look at verse 1 and let's continue Paul's train of thought from last week. Remember, he's speaking about the human example of a man-made covenant and that the law was our pedagogue, our tutor, our overseer until we came of age. 
And so we actually are going to rewind for a minute, go back to verse 24 of chapter 3. So if you need to swipe left or look back, uh, Galatians 3 verse 24 says this, So then the law was our guardian, there's that word pedagogue, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There's the concept. Now we skip to verse 1 of chapter 4 where he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave or from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, if you guys brought a pen or a highlighter or you can borrow one from the person next to you, I want you for a minute to do a little exercise. Okay, we're going to do this. I'm going to put some words on the screens, and I want you for about 10 seconds feverishly to highlight, circle, underline, or mark the following words. I want you to look in verses 1 through 7. If you're on a Bible app, that's fine. Just, just look with me. But if, you're, if you have your Bibles or Scripture journals on the screen, look for these words. Look for the word air and circle it, highlight it, underline it. Anytime in verses 1 through 7 that the word son, child, or children is mentioned, and anytime that slave or enslaved is mentioned, Okay. So go for a moment and fill that out. And what you'll find, if you're done now, verses 1 through 7, you'll find that your Bible should be kind of marked up in those verses. That's because the central theme of these first seven verses, uh, the central theme is connected to the concept of adoption, slavery, inheritance, and sonship. Paul uses an example very familiar with those in the Roman culture. He says in verse 1 that the heir though he's a child, is still kind of like a slave because he's underneath the control of these different managers until his dad sets a date. Okay, So the word for child in verse 1 is the Greek term for infant, and the idea is a, a legal minor. So in Roman law, the fathers had a prescribed date when their son would no longer be under the, that care of guardians and trustees. And that son would now have full rights as an adult, and his father would Basically, from that point on, consider him transitioned from childhood to manhood. And so under Roman law, a son was considered by statute a minor until he completed, as I just mentioned, his 14th or so year. And during which that time, he was then under a tutor that was nominated by his father in his will. And it wasn't really until he was 25 or so... Uh, that he was under a curator and then was named a free agent. So this is like from the ages of 14 to almost 25. There was a series of, of years where he was, had some discretion from his dad, but there was a fixed time in the will of the father where he'd say now he is an adult. And under those years, during those years, that son was kind of under the constraints of those appointed individuals, those guardians and managers. And no matter what the son desired to do, he couldn't make himself not a son. He's still a son. But there's nothing he could do to speed that process up. He couldn't meet with the lawyers and say, can we, can we speed this up? I'm ready to get my inheritance. There's nothing you could do. You'd have to wait until that moment when dad declares that my son is now an adult. And then you'd receive your inheritance and be the beneficiary, you could say, receive the benefits of being an heir. And so Paul says that's exactly what happened to you and to me. Look at verse 3. He says, in the same way, we also, so now he draws it to you and I, we also, when we were children, not speaking about your childhood, he says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's saying, before Christ, 
We are like that heir. One day he is going to receive sonship, but until that time, he's limited. He's enslaved, you could say. And he says, that's what you and I, before Christ, we were enslaved to, notice, the elementary principles of the world. This has nothing to do, by the way, with elementary school. Please circle the word elementary principles. I guess that's two words. So highlight the phrase elementary principles. These together are actually one singular Greek word, which means on the screen, it means the original uncut principles. So this is the stuff that you held to and that you learned from the very beginning. For the Jew, that meant the symbolic and ceremonial character of Judaism and the legal enactments, all that the law represented. To the Gentile, though, that was the ceremonial and ritualistic observances of the pagan religions. And so one commentator even suggests that these elementary principles are the impersonal structures in the world, the things that the world falls into, like politics, democracy, class, philosophy, or sports. Uh, These things that exist in our natural fallen world that unify mankind apart from God. And so Paul refers to these in another letter of his in Colossians. Uh, On the screen, Colossians chapter 2, in two different places, Paul mentions this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. And then he says, according to the same idea, the elementary or the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He says, see to it, beware that no one takes you captive, that no one leads you into bondage or slavery to the mindset of this world. Later on in Colossians 2, he says this in verse 20 through 22, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations like this, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says this is referring to things that all perish as they're used. And then he says according to human precepts and teachings the elemental spirits or the elemental principles. You could call these the ABCs of the world's ideas, the ABCs of this world. It's all of man's counsel and collective wisdom. And Paul says before Christ, you and I were enslaved to them. Now, I don't know about you, but I can just just greatly uh, attest to that. I can greatly identify with that and say, yeah, that paints an accurate picture of my life before Christ. I was bound. I was was enslaved. Does that describe you today before Christ? You were enslaved. You were wrapped up. We were wrapped up in our damnable pride, in our insatiable lust, in our unquenchable appetite for more and our unfailing, unstable insecurity. And so this verse is stating that before Christ, you and I were like children who were heirs, but we had no power or right to take ownership of our inheritance. So legally, he says he's as good as a slave, though by birth he really could be a son. And so this represents the time before our salvation when we were under the ignorance and legalism of the cosmos, you could say. So in one sense, we're no different at that time than ignorant unbelievers. Yet in another, because of the foreknowledge of God, we were considered heirs of God even, as, uh, even before we were sons. But then we come to verse 4. So we have this moment of reminder that this is who we were before Christ. We were enslaved to whatever this world had. We just fell into it. We had no choice but to sin. And then we come to verse 4. At verse 4, we see the word but. I mean, I love verse 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In Scripture, there are these times when 
everything seems hopeless. And then you see this phrase, but God. And I love that hinge, that turning point, that there's no hope, that there's no chance, that you're dead, and yet, but God made us alive, Ephesians chapter 2. I love that picture. In fact, uh, I would say this. I love this equation. Sometimes life has you in despair. And maybe that's where you're at today. Life just has you in despair. But then we introduce God to the scenario. We put God into the equation, and then we realize anything is possible. Amen? Jesus said it himself. With God, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Uh, And so I want to encourage us this morning not to turn to our own gusto, like let me get out there and try harder, do better, but that we would die, that there'd be a death and there'd be a surrender to Christ and trust that God can do all things. Now, let's look at the second section, the the time I want to spend more of our time today, which is this idea of being sons. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says this, but, here it is, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I may have you highlight this entire section, I don't know, but... Uh, please highlight the phrase, when the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time. At, you could say, just the right time, God sent his son into the world to redeem mankind from their former life under the world system or under the law. Now, guys, I want to give you a little teaser for our Christmas service this December. Uh, because the plan is to teach verses 4 and 5 Uh, more in-depth, and December 22nd is our Christmas celebration. We're going to have one service at 10 a.m., and we'll we'll give you more details on that, but um, save the date. We're going to be gathering together here. Um, But I want to just give a little teaser of this passage since we're studying it in Galatians, and and look at verses 4 and 5 for just a moment. So I want to break verses 4 and 5 down in a few points, okay? So if you're taking note, I want to look at each one of these little statements, starting with this phrase, the fullness of time. And we'll put them on the screen for you so you can follow along. First he says, the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come. Now, we don't have time today to go into the cultural, the religious, the linguistic, the political, the ideological, not to mention the spiritual changes that had taken place from the Old Testament to the New Testament when Jesus arrived, from Malachi to Matthew. Because there's a lot that happens. But sufficient for today, there was a lot of things that were ripe on the tree for the Messiah to come when Jesus came. It may have been something like the Pax Romana that afforded travel and commerce along the new accessibility of the Greco-Roman roads. It could have been this common street language of Koine Greek where now everyone could spread the news from person to person without a translator. It could have been the oppression of the Jews at the hands of Rome, uh, causing them to groan inwardly and outwardly for a deliverer. It could have been that. It could have been the barrenness within the Jewish religious system uh, that caused them to look at their hypocritical leadership and, and to then say, well, where is God? And there's a silence from God for about 400 plus years, coupled with a spiritual frustration among the Israelites, and all of this and much more was setting the stage. The fruit was ripening on the tree. You could say the world was becoming pregnant, so to speak, and at just the right time, when the fullness of time had come, at that moment Christ came. God sent his son. The timing of God was sovereignly decreed and perfectly executed. So the fullness of time had come. Secondly, though, if you're taking note, notice that he says, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. 
The incarnation, church, was not an afterthought. It was the very intended will of God. Jesus declared over and over throughout his public ministry that he was sent from the Father. He came from the Father. He proceeded from the Father. Jesus was commissioned to earth to become a man, to fulfill the law, to bear our sin, to put an end to transgression, to set captives free, to preach good news to the poor, and to proclaim the Lord's favor. And all of this was by the intention uh, and the initiation in the hand of the Father. God sent forth his son. It wasn't an accident. God didn't say, this guy Jesus is impressive. Let me just bless him with the spirit of Messiah. No, this is from the very beginning. God sent his son. Well, thirdly, notice with me that it says in the text that Jesus was born of woman. Born of woman. Now, I find it fascinating here what Paul does not say. He does not say born of man and woman. Did you catch that? He didn't say born of man and woman. Doesn't that sound odd to say born, just born of woman? Someone says, hey, who's your parents? And you go, well, my mom is Cindy. Okay, well, well what about your dad? Well, I just told you, my mom's name is Cindy. <laughs> so in biblical lineage, you would always trace back through the man. So what's happening here? Why does he say born of woman? Well, this, I believe, is Paul pointing us back to the fall. Uh, he doesn't say born of a virgin, and I argued with a local pastor about that recently. He doesn't say born of a virgin. That doesn't mean that, that Mary wasn't a virgin. He, I believe, is pointing back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I believe Paul's pointing us back to the fall, that Jesus was not born of man. It was promised in the garden uh, in what we call the gospel beforehand. When man fell, it was promised that the seed of woman that her seed would crush Satan's head even as he received a heel injury, the seed of the woman. Remember in the Gospel of John, we just studied last year and part of this year, Jesus at several occasions calls his mother woman. And I'm not suggesting you try that at home by any means, but Jesus says woman. Remember in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, she says there's an issue and he says, what does this have to do with me, woman? Uh, at the crucifixion, Jesus on the cross says to Mary, woman. Now, obviously, he's not calling her that out of disrespect. Um, we know what happens next if that was out of disrespect, right? It's not pretty. No, I believe Jesus calls her woman because he's showing Mary who she is. And he is showing her who he is. He is the seed who would crush the head of Satan on the cross and drive out the ruler of this world even as he was struck down on the cross. And he's reminding her, you are really ultimately uh, the seed through whom, the woman through whom the seed would come. And so Paul says he was born of woman. Love that. What a great picture. And, and it shows us the very intention of God. But then he says, um, fourthly, born under the law. Born under the law. Jesus was born to Jewish parents under the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was dedicated in the temple. He would celebrate the annual feasts and the holy days. He followed the Mosaic law perfectly. He never broke the law of God, though some have taught that, that Jesus broke God's law. No, he never broke the law. And then we'd have a, a suffering servant who was with sin. No, he was without sin, born under the curse, born under the constraints of the law. And then Paul tells us why. Fifthly, he says this, to redeem us or re to redeem those who were under the law. So listen, the whole purpose of the incarnation was redemption. It was to redeem those who were under the curse and the constraints of the law. And ultimately, this was to the glory of God. I like what David Gustick says. 
talking about the hypostatic union, the, the connection between Jesus' humanity and deity. He says, because Jesus is God, he has the power and the resources to redeem us. Because Jesus is man, he has the right and ability to redeem us. He came to purchase us out of the slave market from our bondage to sin and the elements of the world. So to be redeemed out of the slave market would have been enough. That would have been enough. But look at this last idea in, in the verse. It says, Paul says, so that we might receive adoption. I love this. God sent his son to redeem us, but more than that, to adopt us. We, church, have been adopted by God as sons and daughters. And the doctrine of adoption is what I consider, many theologians consider, the sweetest doctrine. That's the title of our sermon today, The Sweetest Doctrine. Look at verses 6 and 7. If we could just camp out here the rest of the year, we would be profiting. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, note that word Abba and the word Father. Uh, the word Abba has some controversy around it. But most translators would say, okay, the word Abba is a term of endearment that a young boy would use with his father. Almost an affectionate term like the term daddy. Almost like daddy. Now some have said, no, 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 that can't be right. That in the Greek is incorrect. It's inappropriate to call God by a term so intimate. And so uh, to say daddy is over the term. And I would say, but no matter what, the idea here, the early church fathers all agreed that this was a term, Abba Father, that a young child would call their dad. And yes, there's a respect that my kids at a young age had, and so, hello, Father. There's still a moment when you come home from work and they just reach up to you, Daddy. And I really see this, this verse uh, as reflecting on that concept. I'm going with Daddy. I'm going with Abba Daddy. So even if you disagree, the idea is that we can now call God, not Master, but Father. I don't know if we get this, guys. This is huge. This is a term of familial relationship and intimacy. Guys, believers are no longer called uh, slaves. We're now called sons and daughters of God. So the reality of sonship, of crying out father or dad, uh, means that we're no longer slaves. We're now sons. We are heirs. And this sonship is our right through adoption. J.I. Packer says this in drawing this distinction between justification and adoption. He, notice what he says. He says, justification, being made right with God, is the primary blessing, for sure. We've covered that a lot this year because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this is this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. So yes and amen. But then he goes on to say this. That's justification. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and his fellowship, and he establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is, he says, greater.
Wow. There is an interesting correlation between adoption, sonship, and the Holy Spirit. Often when we think of the Trinitarian perspective, we think only of God the Father as as involved in adoption because he's the Father. We use that phrase, and rightly so. Um, And then, okay, and Jesus is our elder brother. Okay, that's good. But what about the Spirit? Well, he says here in verse 6 that uh, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts And that allows us to cry, Abba, Father. In fact, Paul said it in Romans 8. You can jot this verse down. He said in Romans 8, 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. That means we're heirs of God and we're co-heirs with Christ. So notice with me that the Spirit initiates sonship and the Spirit leads those who are adopted. The Spirit allows sons and daughters to recognize and to draw near to their father. The Spirit bears witness intrinsically and internally that we are indeed God's children. And the Spirit confirms that truth to us. And that's why... As we open the service today with 1 John 5, 13, I don't have to question my salvation because both the Word of God promises and the Spirit of God confirms to me that I'm God's adopted son. Now, that doesn't mean we won't wrestle, we won't struggle, we won't sometimes fear that, but I have that assurance of my salvation. John Stott said that the Son grants to us the status of our sonship, but the Spirit grants to us the experience of our sonship. Now, church, theologically, it's correct to point out that Christ is the only true son. He's the only true son. And the rest of us are sons and daughters by adoption. I don't know if you have experienced the joy that comes with understanding the sweetest doctrine, the joy and the freedom and and just the overflow that comes from realizing this truth that I'm adopted into the family. Adoption is the gracious act of God wherein he makes justified sinners his beloved children. One person said this in drawing this idea of adoption from our idea of adoption today. They said this, it happens every day in courts across America. I don't know if we can put it on the screen. He says, a judge utters a few words, he pounds his gavel on the desk, and a child receives a new family. This moment is always bittersweet. Why is that? Because adoptions take place because biological parents are either unable, unfit, or unwilling to care for the child they brought into the world. But these events are wonderful because when the hammer strikes, that child belongs fully to parents committed to love and care for for him. Uh, Most adopted children, after the gavel has been struck, though, are still tempted to question if their new home is going to last. They may wonder, do I really belong to this family? And does this new home really belong to me? And so that can be a struggle. But when it comes to God's adoption of his children, we don't have to fear. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to be uncertain. He is eternally our father. And that's because adoption is not rooted in how well you stay connected to your father. Adoption is rooted in God's eternal plan and his inexhaustible love. And so one person said this. They said, before mountains rose... Before rivers ran, before birds flew, Ephesians 1.5 reminds us that God predestined us for adoption 
uh, to himself through Jesus Christ. And so the person said, God's desire to adopt sinners into his family through the work of his son precedes even the work of creation. I love what John Piper says about adoption. And we need to know this. That's why we're spending so much time on this. He says, adoption in God's mind was not plan B. He predestined us for adoption before the creation of the world. Plan A was not, a lot of us think this, was not lots of children who never sin and never need to be redeemed. That was not plan B or plan A. Plan A was creation, fall, redemption, and adoption so that the full range of God's glory and mercy and grace could be known by his adopted children. I love this. Adoption was not second best. It was planned from the beginning. And then he makes this awesome correlation between that concept and then some of us who are adoptive parents. And I thought this was kind of a cool connection for some of us just to give honor to you who are adoptive and fostering parents. He says this, in our lives, there's something uniquely precious about having children by birth. And that is a good plan. He says, but there's also something different but also uniquely precious about adopting children. Each has its own uniqueness. And I love this part. Your choice to adopt children may be sequentially second, but does not have to be secondary. It can be as precious and significant as having children by birth. Isn't that cool? We've been adopted into the family of God. So 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What a glorious truth, the sweetest doctrine. I believe this is the apex of God's grace to us in Christ, that we are heirs with his son, Jesus. We are joined with our elder brother to be accepted in the beloved. Guys, we are forever redeemed and adopted into his family. We've been set free and brought into an inheritance we could never earn or deserve. Someone say amen to that today. Now, verse 8 and on changes gears a little bit. If we stop the sermon there, and a lot of guys do, they go from verses 1 to 7 and that's it. But I want you to see Paul's train of thought as he goes through this. Because if we stop the sermon there today, we'd leave on that amazing like apex. Yeah, amen. Let's go out. But see, Paul's train of thought is in light of that, in light of that, how on earth could you as an adopted son want to go back to being a slave? It makes no sense. So look at verse Eight with me as Paul issues a challenge that speaks to the sheer lunacy of going back to slavery now that we've come of age and been liberated. Look at verses 8 through 11. He says, Formerly when you did not, did not know God, you were enslaved, past tense, to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know the one true God, or more accurate theologically, you've been known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles, there's that phrase again, of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. And here's a practical example of that. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul, you could say, is asking this question. How is this possible? Before you knew God, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a slave to sin. But now you know God. And you've been adopted into his family. You're known by God. It wasn't that God didn't know you before. He knows all things. But now you're known intimately, and you're known as a beloved son and daughter, and you're not as, uh, known as a child of wrath. So how can you be set free and choose to go back into bondage? Now, guys, when, when we see the word slave in this section of Scripture, we have to differentiate in our mind between Greco-Roman slavery and what we could call African black slave uh, the slave industry that per was perpetuated and eventually abolished in Europe and here in America, unfortunately not soon enough. 
Okay, there, there's a difference between these two concepts, and I think we muddy this and confuse this. There, by the way, are still modern-day slaves today. Uh, humans are still being trafficked, and so the whole idea of slavery, of taking another human and putting them into bondage and selling them and owning them, that runs counter to everything we learn about Scripture about being made in the image of God. So, Though there were slaves taken from the continent of Africa and there are slaves today, that's not the slave that Paul's referring to here. He's, he's speaking about someone who worked for another person and was an indentured servant. So doctors, musicians, teachers, many of those in the commercial trade were what you could call slaves. They put themselves into a time period of work. You'd commit yourself to this for a few years to earn money to pay off a debt. I'm sorry, but it does sound a little bit like college, doesn't it? <laughs> it's there. Now, notice in verse 9 that these aren't new principles. These were, he calls them, weak and worthless elementary principles. Remember that? The ABCs of the symbolic and ceremonial character of Judaism and all that the law represented. So Paul is saying, this is not a step forward. After you've been liberated... To go back into the ABCs of the world is not liberation. That's not manhood. That's childhood. That's a step back from adulthood to childhood. Now, I promised I wasn't going to mention Disney Plus in the sermon this week, but can I just show you this? A picture of childhood to adulthood back to childhood. <laughs> we got Disney Plus. We're back. We're kids again, and I like it. But Paul says moving back to the law, back to the law, would be to digress back into childhood. Warren Wearsby says this. We can get that off the screen. He says, one of the tragedies of legalism is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads the believer back into a second childhood of Christian experience. I don't want to be a kid again spiritually. One translation of the word worthless in this text actually says beggarly, and I love that, beggarly. <laughs> You're going to observe a special day or a month or a season or a year, and you think, man, that makes me a king. No, it makes you a beggar. John Calvin said, when certain days are represented as holy in themselves, like, I don't know, guys, this is, this is the special day today. When one day is distinguished from another on religious grounds, when holy days are reckoned a part of divine worship, the days are improperly observed. And we know this, right? We know this. Jesus said it. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. It was the other way around. The Sabbath was made for man. And so we don't follow laws under compulsion or obligation, hoping that if I fulfill the law, I'm pleasing God. No, we're not, sons, or we're not slaves, we're sons. So why would we ever go back to slavery? Paul says in verse 11, I fear that I may have labored over you in vain. In vain, that means empty. In our Ecclesiastes study a few years ago, same concept. It's empty, it's vanity. But he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you and done the hard work of pastoral ministry in vain. I feel like maybe it was just all a worthless waste of time. Now, the word labor here is very important. The word labor, of course, means to work hard. And Paul is saying, I worked hard in my ministry to you, people of Galatia. Uh, you could say this, ministry is hard work. It involves people. And ministering to people is laborious. It's not easy work. So if you're here today and you're thinking about going into ministry because of the money or because the ease of ministry, then just avoid seminary and go into golfing. You can go into professional golfing because that seems kind of fun and, and there's lots of money in it. But listen, ministry is hard work. It's labor. 
So let me just give you just a picture. There's many of you laboring, but when I talk about ministering and laboring with pastoral ministry, just in, in any given week, in the last few months, our elders have met with a variety of people, and they've labored over people. Here's just some examples. In the last few months, on any given week, we've met with men who are struggling in their marriage with pornography in this church. We have done marriage counseling for couples who are learning to live biblically and unselfishly, and, and we're fighting for their marriages, and we're, we're exhausting ourselves to pray for them uh, and to encourage them. We've sat with people who decided to forsake their faith, and we've pleaded with them, no, cling to Christ, cling to his word. We've wrestled with people that want to have appetite satiated. Uh, we've defended the faith against false teaching uh, and against false beliefs. We have agonized in prayer over those suffering through trials or falling away through apathy. And we've labored, of course, in the hard work of studying God's word in order to instruct and exhort and equip the church in sound teaching. And I'm not saying that to, to applause for the elders. That's what we're called to do. That's, that's called ministry. That's a part of the work. But that doesn't even mention organizing leadership, overseeing, planning, and communicating to a growing congregation. Um, Paul is wondering if all that pastoral leadership and ministry and labor is vanity. Is it a waste? Now, when I get to sit down with someone and I see that they get the gospel and I see the eyes kind of light up, oh, now I get it. When I see a husband say, I'm turning away from sin, I'm going I'm to give my life to Christ, I will lead my family well. When I see a family say, you know what, we're not leaving because this wasn't met. We're going to serve in this particular area. We're going to lay down our lives and trust the Lord to this community. Then we're able to see God glorified. We're able to see this labor not done in vain. And ultimately, Paul's saying, church, you should have known better. How is it possible to have all of this gospel work done and then you turn back to foolish things and enslave yourself when you're now a mature son? It doesn't make any sense when we see what we have in Christ. So before we close uh, today, I want to apply this passage of Scripture. And really to do that, I have three questions for us this morning. So if you have a pen, I want you to, or your phone, take a picture of the screen or jot these questions down. Can we stew on these questions this week? Are you guys up for this? Can you think about these today? I know often we go to lunch and after lunch we're like, how was the sermon, Bob? And uh, we're just asking that. And, uh, and I would love for the question to be, and I've said this before, the sermon was horrible, but Jesus is awesome. That would be a better thing to say. Um, but can we ask those questions instead of how do you think the sermon was? How do you think worship was? I think a better question would be, hey, um, those questions that were asked, how are you doing with that? Uh, how's, how's it going in your life? So number one, asking these questions, are you experiencing the joy of sonship? It's a yes or no question. Today we are gathered together as his adopted children, no longer slaves, no longer as outsiders looking in. This is a day that we can remember, as we just sang, that we've passed from death to life. The rite of passage has been accomplished. We are adopted, and we can rest in that glorious truth and worship him, knowing that it is finished and we belong to him. And this, according to scripture, helps to combat fear. Uh, Romans 8.15, we read it earlier, says, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And I believe, church, just from my own study time and understanding this, man, sonship brings with it a, 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 an inexpressible joy. Uh, Walter B. Knight has this definition of joy, which is one of my favorite definitions. He says, 
Joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts, announcing that the king is in residence today. Isn't that great? Love that picture. Or we could say it's the sign that is outside that says dad is home today. Dad is home. One of the best parts of my day in life is coming home uh, because my kids have a little thing. They, they're older now, but they scream and they run out to greet me, and I love that. It's a wonderful moment for me to come home and, and hug my kids and know that my presence brings them joy. Often it's because I'm going to take them to Burger King. No, um, dad's home, dad's home, and there's a screaming and running. I love that. And that should be the same realization that we have as Christians. There should be a realization this morning, you're no longer an orphan hoping to be adopted. You're no longer illegitimate. You can call upon God as father. But see, sadly, I think some of us still live as though we're slaves. And so we're trying to vie for our father's affection. We're trying to impress him with our works. And that brings us to our second question this morning. Are you returning to slavery by doing so as a legalist? The legalist erroneously believes that I'm a law keeper. But the reality is we're an idolater. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, which he basically called his wife, loved the book of Galatians. And in his commentary, he says this, those who refuse to be justified by Christ are idolaters. They remain under the law, they remain under sin, they remain under death, and they remain under the power of the devil. Everything that they do is wrong. If you're not going to be justified, then you're going to work for your salvation, meaning you are, by definition, an idolater. Sinclair Ferguson recently wrote this powerful quote. He said, legalism is this. It's separating the law of God from the person of God. So instead of coming to the person of God, we say, well, yeah, that's fine. I'm going to just do the works you've called me to do. And maybe we're tempted to do that, to look past Jesus just to the works of the law. And my prayer is that we would look to the Lord, that the affections of our heart, that the aspirations of our endeavors, that the, the passions of our thoughts and energies, the longings of our hopes and visions, the, the deep dreaming and intellectual pondering of our minds, even the time and skill and money and creativity that we expend over wasted idols, that, that, that all of our life would be laid at Jesus' feet in worship of the true God and eternal life who came at just the right time to redeem us from the law. So guys, let's not turn back to the law. Let's turn to Christ. Thirdly, question for us. Are you serving God as a slave or are you serving him as a son? There's a snarky girl here today saying, well, I'm a daughter. Okay, a son or a daughter, a child of God. A good example of this question, this is a harder one to answer, a good uh, picture of this is John Wesley. Before his conversion, this is what John Wesley's rap sheet looked like. This is before his conversion. John Wesley, before he was converted, was the son of a clergyman and became a clergyman himself. He was orthodox in belief, faithful in morality, and full of good works. According to David Gusick, he did ministry in prisons, sweatshops, and slums. He gave food, clothing, and education to slum children. He observed Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath. He sailed from England to the Americas as a missionary. He studied his Bible, prayed, fasted, and gave regularly. So from the outward glance, he was doing everything that a sold-out Christian should be doing. If it existed back then, I bet John Wesley even eat at Chick-fil-A, okay? So yet at the same time, according to him, at that time he was still bound in chains 
in his own religious efforts because he trusted in what he could do to make himself right before God instead of trusting in what Jesus has done. And so later he came to trust in Christ. He says, in Christ only for salvation. And he came to this inner assurance that he was now forgiven, now he was saved, now he was a son of God. And here's what he said, looking back at all of his religious activity before he was saved. He said this. He said, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. Wow. Does that describe you here this morning? I'm going to invite our worship team forward, and we're going to close uh, this time in the word of God by singing a new song um, today. The song is called, My Worth is Not in What I Own. Powerful song. And it's a song that captures the reality of what we have at the cross. Look at the words on the screen, uh, some of the lyrics we're going to be singing. It's this wonderful concept where he says, two wonders here that I confess. I'm going to sing this. My worth and my unworthiness. Uh, My value's fixed. My ransom is paid at the cross. In other words, are we unworthy? Yes. But there's still a worth that God sent his son to die in our place. And then the chorus says this. Our response is this. I rejoice in my redeemer. Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Church, may we have the faith of a son, not merely a slave. May we realize today not only are we redeemed, we're also adopted into the beloved. May this sweetest doctrine bring joy and peace when pain and trial come. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. I'm going to pray a Puritan prayer called the name of Jesus, the valley of vision. And this is my prayer for us this morning. It says, in Jesus the enslaved find redemption, the guilty find pardon, the unholy find renovation. In Jesus are everlasting strength for the weak, unsearchable riches for the needy, treasures of wisdom and knowledge for the ignorant, and fullness for the empty. At thy gracious call, I hear, take, come, apply, and receive his grace. Not only submit to his mercy, but acquiesce in it. Not only glory in the cross, but in him crucified and slain. Not only joy and forgiveness, but in the one through whom atonement comes. Thy blessings are as secure as they are glorious. Thou hast provided for my safety and my future, and hast promised that I shall stand firm and grow stronger. O Lord God, without the pardon of my sin, I cannot rest satisfied. Without the renovation of my nature by grace, I can never rest easy. And without the hopes of heaven, I can never be at peace. But all this I have in thy son, Jesus. Blessed be his name. Lord, that's our prayer of gratitude today. It's only in the name of Christ, our elder brother, the true heir, the true son, that we are now grafted in. We are now heirs with the son, heirs of God, heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance in the beloved. Thank you for that truth today. Lord, we may not have fully understood that this morning, but Lord, would you remind us this week of what we have in Christ that we don't have to earn or work for our salvation and we can rest in the finished work of Christ and just enjoy our sonship and enjoy our heavenly father. We love you today, Lord. We worship you. We sing this reminding ourselves that you are our redeemer and that we belong to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. 
You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.